So I go inside and um, as I walk into the kitchen, I can't describe it as anything other than a scene out of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. There was blood everywhere. Uh, as the police arrived, they were like, put that down, don't touch that. Um, I was taken to one side. They decided that I potentially was a perpetrator and I'd attacked Sophie. Hello and welcome to the Truth, Lies and Workplace Culture podcast brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. My name is Leanne. I'm a business psychologist. My name is Al. I'm a business owner. We are here to help you simplify the science people and create amazing workplace cultures. Welcome back. Welcome back. Lots of uh, lots of love recently on LinkedIn for uh, for our pod. There's a dog sneeze in the background for you. It's not, it's not a sound <laughs> effect. It's a real dog. Uh, so welcome back. If you are new here, as we always say, then it's all about creating amazing workplaces and amazing places to work. Uh, Leanne's the expert. I'm not. So I'll be asking the questions that you probably have in your head as and when we talk. Before we start this episode, just a really quick mention from the people who pay our bills, HubSpot. So here's the question. Ever wondered what unicorns eat for breakfast? Sometimes, actually. Yeah, I'm thinking something like Lucky Charms, Candy Floss, some kind of soup. Something horny. Well, actually, we don't know. But what we do know is that 20% of unicorn startups are using HubSpot, and for good reason. Yes, HubSpot's all-in-one platform levels up your sales software and support. Plus, they have a huge collection of resources to help startups scale. And with the HubSpot for Startups program, you can save big on your first year. To see if you're eligible to save on HubSpot, visit HubSpot.com startups. Yes, if you are joining us for the first time in 2024, welcome. It's February, hurrah. And February is a very important month for a number of reasons. Yes, February is LGBTQ plus history month. And we'd be interested to hear what your organization is doing for it. In case you haven't heard anything about it, don't worry. Our guests are going to explain it all in a second. We thought the best way we can contribute as allies to bring you some pretty special guests in February. So we're kicking things off with the extraordinary Danielle and Sophie from the Belonging Base Consultancy. Yes, Danielle and Sophie Wood from University Sweethearts navigating the complexities of gender transition. Danielle and Sophie have weathered many of life's storms together. Their journey encompasses challenges with mental health, employment transitions, and the intricacies of navigating diverse relationships. In 2023, they co-founded Belonging Base. They were driven by a genuine commitment to LGBTQ plus issues and mental health. And Danny and Sophie use their experience of leading diversity and inclusion teams to help business leaders build inclusive cultures that enhance the human experience. They are committed to positive change. And today we'll be learning more about their own lived experiences of belonging and how it shapes the work they do today with clients. This is an incredible story and it's one that covers a lot of themes that some listeners may find challenging, including experiences with adverse mental health and suicide. Please do check the show notes if you're struggling at the moment. You'll find some useful resources and support that you can access straight away. Let's start our episode by meeting our incredible guests. Let's meet Danielle and Sophie Wood. My name's Danielle Wood and this is my partner Sophie Wood. We are a married couple and we've been together um, 31 years. Um, and together we formed our own business last year called Belonging Base. We're British citizens, but we're living um, a lovely life on the Sunshine Coast in Spain. 
having been married as husband and wife 21 years ago, um, Sophie transitioned um, as transgender in um, 2011. And that has filled the story of where we are today. Okay, as promised before, here is a short overview from Sophie of what LGBTQ plus month is and why you should care. Well, it started out, um, and Danny backed me up on this. I think it was two teachers, wasn't it? Who, who really wanted to increase the awareness of um, children's education around um, LGBTQ communities and, and issues. Typical history syllabus would not include any reference to people from, you know, LGBT groups typically. So that was the kind of impetus behind it all starting. I can't remember the teachers' names, um, but fair play to them. And it's kind of grown into this, this kind of part of the calendar month where we can actually tell people's stories. And also when you're telling somebody's story or if you're giving somebody a voice to tell their own story, for example, then that's when human connections um, are possible. So at this point, we'd usually set the scene and tell you what to expect from the episode. But these women have an incredible story, which they're going to share straight away. So let's start with Sophie. If I look at my personal journey, just to put it all into context, when I was in my mid-30s, I had, from an outlooker's perspective, got a dream life. So I had a great job working in the UK policing, beautiful wife, Danielle, great relationship with my parents, great friends, uh, extended family networks, and everything going for me. But at that time, I was experiencing sustained periods of depression. And I was, to the extent that I was actually self-harming, um, which is kind of quite strange because there was no tangible reason why that should be. So I had to go on that journey to try and solve that problem. So that entailed two years, basically, of CBT, speaking to a psychologist. And it was working through those two years of, of conversations. Um, they actually had an epiphany moment which was, oh my God, I, I am, I am Sophie. I am, I am female. So all of these kind of feelings, which have been with me since a small child, but have been supremely and expertly locked down into kind of parts of myself, which, um, I didn't want to kind of get in touch with suddenly came to the fore. So I made this huge decision, really brave decision, um, knowing that I could lose everything if I, if I came out to, to friends and family. Um, and, and, and initially that's exactly what happened. It was worst case scenario that my family rejected me. I still haven't spoken to my kind of parents and brother since the moment. Lost pretty much the entirety of our friends group by, by two people. Um, ended up losing the place where we lived. Initially kind of lost the kind of marriage relationship with Danielle. Um, and also contact with her side of the family as well. But I'd kind of thrown all my eggs into one basket big time uh, with that decision to actually do something, make my life better. And just after that happened, um, I got a letter from the kind of local hospital, the PCT, who did the funding um, at that time, telling me that they weren't going to send me to actually engage the NHS in terms of supporting my transition. Um, and that kind of, because I just lost everything making this huge decision, had a dramatic effect on my mental health. And that led to um, a kind of serious self-harm suicide event, um, which for the poor Danielle, who was dealing with my, the shock of my transition, actually turned into an attempted murder suspect. Now that's how Sophie describes it. What about Danielle? What does she remember about that evening? Imagine this, if you will. 
Um, we were both working for the police at the time. And on this particular day, um, I was hosting an award ceremony um, at police headquarters with the deputy chief constable. Had a lovely evening, um, packed up, wrapped up, got started going home, drew up on the drive in the car and the front door's wide open. It's late at night. It's dark. Um, and I'm thinking, what on earth is our front door doing open? I didn't say I was on my way. Um, and so I called, I called Sophie's name and she said, leave the door open, leave the door open and sounded quite panicked. So I go inside and, um, as I walk into the kitchen, I can't describe it as anything other than a scene out of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. There was blood everywhere. And Sophie's lying on the floor, kind of semi-conscious and I'm kind of in shock. I don't really know what's going on. And all of a sudden the first responder arrives and kind of like appears in the kitchen. And I'm, I'm, I'm just, I don't know what happened because, you know, when you watch crime dramas on TV and they say, don't touch the knife. Well, I touched the knife and I not only touched the knife, I picked it up and my little kind of thing about cleanliness, I actually went to the sink and washed it up. Um, and put it on the side. And uh, as the police arrived, they were like, put that down, don't touch that. Um, I was taken to one side. They decided that I potentially was a perpetrator and I'd attacked Sophie. And they decided that it was, um, I would need to be detained. So I wasn't allowed near Sophie. I had a police escort. They took my house keys off me. I had tape around the house. I wasn't allowed back in until scenes of crime had been in. Um, and... Do you know what? The fortunate part for me was that that evening I had been with the deputy chief constable of that police force, which meant that when it came to alibi time, they were able to check me out pretty quick. So I, you know, I was back in the house the next morning, but it was, it was a really traumatic night, really traumatic night. It was. And we, we can look back on it with humor, I think, um, because of that, that scenario, because we are big fans of, of crime dramas. But the, ser the serious note of that was... Um, I ended up re recovering from that and I was then spent a week in a mental health unit, which was a really fascinating, um, experience, very, very scary, um, not enjoyable at all. And whilst all this was happening, um, we're still both working at police headquarters. They were one of our colleagues at work. We've got no idea that all of this stuff is happening. So I literally came out of mental health institution back into into, into work and, and carried on with, with my training role. Um, and everyone just thought I'd had, uh, you know, short absence for, for some reason. The reason that I've started off talking about mental health is I mentioned there that pre-transition, I had this, this kind of serious low mental health with periods of ill mental health in, interspersed over, over a series of years. But post-transition, I have what I can only describe as a kind of inner light inside of me, um, which is, is, is actually quite beautiful, I think, which means that I have a kind of resilience within me that I can actually deal with most things that life throws at me. And being a binary trans woman, life is throwing quite a lot in, in my direction. It is quite the story. What we love about these women is how honest and open they are. This really is the first step in driving positive change because people's lived experiences breed understanding and empathy and compassion. And for those with a similar lived experience, reassurance that they're not alone. 
So fast forward a few months and Sophie has made the brave decision to tell the world that she is transgender. So what was this like for Danielle? When Sophie first told me that she was transgender, it was, I think, in the April of that year. And then the incident in the kitchen was kind of later on that summer. And it was, it kind of rocked our worlds. And as she said, she was actually had, it got so bad that we ended up um, having to um, section her for a while. She came out of there and everybody in our lives had an opinion on what was going on. At the time, people were telling me what I should do, what I shouldn't do. Every time we left the house, people stared at us, people made comments. They went round the supermarket aisles twice to look at us. And I just, I just was finding the whole thing overwhelming. And as part of that, I tried really, really hard to kind of like carry on as, you know, life as normal. And after a while, it just got, it just got too much. My mental health was suffering. I had some time off work. I had counseling. I think the counselor that I had helped me get to where I am today. Without them, I don't know where I would have been. And when I say that, that's because at the time, there was not a lot in mainstream media about um, being transgender. There was hardly any resources on the internet. And I was really, really struggling to find help. And the doctors decided, because they didn't have anyone who dealt with this kind of situation, they sent me off to see three therapists to pick one to see whether, you know, how I could work with them. And the, the one that I went to see that I, I kind of like felt an affinity with and we started to work together was one that said, look, I, I can't say that I've had the, this experience before, but what I'm looking at is I'm looking at you and I'm listening to you. And what I'm he hearing is that you're going through a type of bereavement. You're going through a loss of your husband, the life that you have now, the way that you're perceived in society, and also the loss of a life that you thought you had, the future you thought you had, which really resonated with me because it was, it was a total U-turn in terms of our life. The kind of, the question which probably changed everything was she said to me, what's your greatest fear? And I said it was losing my best friend. And of course she looked at me and said, well, why do you need to do that? And I hadn't even thought, I thought it was a kind of all in or all out. And um, so she's, so from that, we worked with that and um, it, we decided that maybe do we just be friends or do we carry on in our relationship? And as part of that, um, she encouraged me to think about other avenues and exploring other things. And I thought with all the white noise, with all of the staring, with all of the chatter, I thought, do you know what? I'm going to just make a break and I'm going to say, I'm going to go off and do something completely different for six months. And then that will clear my mind, give me some space and enable me to work out what, what I want to do next. So I ended up packing up my entire life into the back of a Fiat 500, which you can imagine was tough and driving down to the South of Spain and finding a job in Gibraltar, which is a, a English speaking British overseas territory. And that six months was, was pivotal to the rest of our lives. And in fact, strange enough, Sophie actually drove down with me to actually deliver me to Spain. And then she stayed a couple of weeks and I put her on a plane back to the UK two weeks later. 
And the moment she left, I felt like I'd lost my my arm or my leg. It was like I knew in that moment that I felt like I'd made a mistake, that being apart wasn't what I wanted. But in actual fact, it was probably what I needed to solidify that thought because that time period made me realize that your connection with a human being is much more than being husband and wife and being seen as acceptable in society, that heterosexual couple, which blends in. Yes, things were going to be more tough. Yes, people were going to look at Sophie as transgender. And actually, she's now thrown me into a world where the rest of the world sees me as in a lesbian couple if we stay together. So that was really hard for me as well. And it still, to this day, remains uncomfortable in certain situations, particularly in work situations where, you know, you're meeting new people and you're not sure whether you trust that somebody's going to be supportive or not, which is fundamentally one of the reasons that when we decided to pool our resources and experiences um, to, to form Belonging Base, it was about helping people to not have to go through those really, really uncomfortable experiences in their personal life and at work. Because when you're feeling that you're hiding, that you're being cautious about who you trust all the time, it just puts you on edge and you don't really, you don't, you don't really progress. Talking of the workplace, we wanted to know how Sophie's colleagues reacted. So my experience in the workplace has been largely positive because of the people who are working with me and the way that they actually kind of treat me. Now, because they're dealing with me day in, day out, they just see me as the same as them, a human being doing a job. So any kind of uh, turns disappears, usually within about two hours of meeting me. And then it's just a normal human relationship. We make human connections with each other, just like people do in teams all over the world. Um, but what I found in all organizations is what I call these concentric circles of hate. So the inner core of people who deal with me and know me get on absolutely fine. There's no issues at all. Um, and then when you go wider out into the company where people don't see me or interact with me on a daily basis, their kind of behavior um, towards me and the language that they use and that's reported back to me on occasion is, 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 you know, gets worse and worse. And then when you go into the wider company in quite a few organizations, then they just have this experience of taking on information from, from mainstream media. Now, the media does seem to like this subject. There are so many articles online and many of them dismiss transgenderism, easy for me to say, as a mental health condition. I must admit, until I met Sophie, I wasn't entirely sure how it all worked myself. So I asked Sophie to school me. It's, it's not a mental health condition. It's, it's, it's quite difficult to explain to people because it's, it's just kind of an innate an innate. Um, feeling, in my case, I'm a binary trans woman. So my, my gender identity is congruent with who I am on the inside. Everything is, is, is lined up and people try and kind of turn it into an educational exercise and go into the other like definitions and, and things like that. People always say gender identity is in the brain, but it's more than that. I think it's in the, it is, it is in the brain, but it's also in your heart and in your soul. Um, and it's absolutely definitive. Um, and it's also something that should be really private to me. Ideally in life, it really shouldn't impact anybody else's life. Um, 
And in the main, it, it doesn't at all. Some people who dismiss the transgender experience use the argument that it shouldn't exist in the first place. Despite the complexities and social constructs surrounding the idea of gender, some people believe that if you are born with male genitalia, you're a man. And if you are born with female genitalia, you're a woman. Their argument is that nobody can be transgender. Sophie explains this way of thinking isn't quite right. So basically, it's a, it's a belief that sex is immutable. So it's kind of you are born male or female, that's determined by genitalia, and there is nothing else in science that exists outside of that. Therefore, a trans identity is completely invalid. That's that's kind of simple way of describing that belief system. The science doesn't back that up. Um, one of the frustrating things for me, I came out, as I said, in 2011, is these kind of debates all across Europe and in many other countries around the world, these debates were settled in, uh, you know, kind of from the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s. And it's, it should be a, a complete non-issue. So those kind of macro issues, if you, if you kind of think about the the kind of press coverage around trans issues, which remember between 0.1, 0.5, 6, I don't know the exact figures, percent of the population. It's absolutely tiny. And it really shouldn't be public interest at all, but it is used as a, as a kind of way of distracting people from what's actually really going on. You may have seen the other argument from certain people who we won't name on YouTube, that this is just an excuse for men to get access to female-only areas. So is there any truth to this? Well, who better to ask than someone who had a complete access to the National Sex Offenders Database? Here's Sophie again. Um, so the main kind of myth of trans people at the moment is that we are a threat to women and girls in, in private spaces. So the theory is that somebody who is not trans, who's a predatory male, will actually go through and engage with um, a kind of gender transition in order to facilitate their modus operandi, their MO, in committing a sexual offence um, against a, a woman or a girl. Now, when you actually consider that in the cold light of day, it's, as, a, as a proposition, it just dissipates on contact with air, really. It's, it's actually quite a ridiculous notion. When I worked in the police service, I trained and had access to all of the national kind of crime systems. So I had access to national crime data and my fingertips. I, I trained the National Sex Offenders Database. I had access to all of that data. And at that point, there were zero crimes recorded in the UK following that modus operandi. There was only one crime I found was searching the police national computer, which was somebody taking on the guise of a female to make their escape. So it's some guys did over a post office and they dressed in burkas to actually kind of disperse themselves into a crowd. And so that was the only time in the whole criminal justice history of the UK um, as of 2015, which, you know, hopefully is quite informative to people who like things like facts, um, that it is completely a non-issue. And if you look at the, the kind of countries who practice, you know, self-ID, you know, places like Malta, Ireland, just to name two, they also have zero instances of people being threatened at all. So it's a complete fallacy. But this informs what is supposedly this grand debate, culture war debate in mainstream media, which you'll never see a trans person partaking in. It's an absurd notion that trans people are predators. 
yet it's one I hear spouted online a lot. This narrative is not only incorrect and grossly unfair, it's dangerous. This misinformation spreads fear, which spreads aggression, which spreads violence. Transgender individuals and communities experience shocking amounts of violence and discrimination. In fact, transgender people are over four times more likely to be victims of violent crime, including rape, sexual assault and aggravated assault. This narrative is dangerous. This narrative needs to stop. Yeah, clearly there were a lot of changes for both Danielle and Sophie when Sophie transitioned. But there was something that became glaringly obvious to Sophie when she presented her new self. When I presented as Sophie, and I, I didn't look very good in terms of what people termed passing at the time, because I didn't do any kind of, you know, any preparations or whatnot, then I wasn't perceived as female, I was perceived as other, okay? But the thing that hit me right in the face was I lost all of the male privilege that I'd had up to that moment in my life. The ability to walk into a shop, the, you know, to go into a bar, sit down, read a book, strike a conversation with somebody completely disappeared overnight now i didn't know that i had male privilege until i didn't have it yeah and that's the challenge and that's why that kind of mindset is wrong but it's a real tough nut to crack the greatest trick privilege ever pulled is convincing people it didn't exist. Now, Sophie did concede in the full interview that she's paraphrased Kaiser Soze from the Usual Suspects movie there, but still, what a line. As we've alluded to before, Danielle and Sophie have set up a consultancy to help organisations be more inclusive. Here's Sophie to explain their reasoning, and she starts by telling a story about when she was working for the police service in the UK. It's East Midlands Regional Group of Forces. I was there speaking about my journey, and I like a bit of audience participation. So I threw it out and said, why are you here today? And a police officer at the front said, I'm here as a punishment. And there was a group of police officers, like 10 of them, who had done something bad in their, in their duties um, out in the community. And as a punishment, they've been sent on this diversity course. And I found that quite amusing at the time, but it really started my brain working over time. And I suddenly realized that they were the people that I needed to speak to. They are the hearts and minds that I need to change if I want to make, you know, my diversity and inclusion work actually effective. When we're talking about transgender issues now, we're having the same conversations I was having back then, over 10 years later. And I've noticed that in the corporate DNI world, nothing's really moved forward. And because of that experience, that's informed my belief that in order for DNI to be effective, you need to talk to the 95% of people who don't give a shit about DNI rather than the continual 5% who really get it. Um, and if I was going to characterize corporate DNI at the moment, it's this giant echo chamber of people who are really passionate about diversity and inclusion, speaking to people who are interested in diversity and inclusion and therefore really get it. And so I think that's one of the main reasons why things just haven't moved forward as much as they should do. This is such a revelation to me because Sophie's absolutely right. There is zero point in talking about this to people who are already converted, that whole preaching to the choir thing. It's the non-believers who need to hear this, which is why I genuinely hope 
that this is an uncomfortable but necessary listen for some people. But when it comes to seeking change in the workforce, millennials and Gen Z are, as usual, spearheading the campaign. One of the things um, that we've been coming across time and time again through research and actually speaking to members of um, Generation Z, Gen Z, is that their their views and their values are very different and what in what they want an employer in the workplace. This started with the millennials and now the Gen Z. And by I think it's twenty thirty, about thirty odd of the workplace will be from that generation. And they're looking at their workplaces and going to interviews and asking these two-way questions. It's no longer an interview where the business just asks you about your skills and experience and what you can bring to the table, but they see it as a two-way conversation and they're finding out whether the employer is a good fit for them. And if they don't have inclusion at this, the front and centre, of what they do, and if they're called, you know, corporate social responsibility, etc., their ethical values are not aligned, they're unlikely to want to pursue a career with that organization. And so I think businesses really do need to think about this because as we move through the next couple of decades, the people that don't put so much importance on it will be falling out of the workplace. And if business owners don't start to look at making sure that their culture is inclusive. They just won't attract and retain the best talent. So I always say it's a little bit like, you know, are they heading towards extinction? Um, are they dinosaurs? Danielle and Sophie have had extensive experience working with organisations to improve inclusion and belonging. So who do they think is doing a particularly good job? Here's Sophie. I, I think a good Absolutely. example from the UK that I'm aware of where their kind of external values are, you know, really live vicariously through their, their kind of value sets within, within their teams. And they've got a really great inclusive culture. It's actually Anne Summers. So I've got some former colleagues who, who, who work at Anne Summers in, in the UK, and they are, I think, really, really switched on in terms of everything that we're talking about. Well, one of the things that they're doing really well is They've, they've introduced a kind of, which would traditionally be termed a kind of learning experience platform where um, people can access, you know, personal growth um, learning, but they're, they, they're using it as an effective learning tool for people that can be accessed remotely throughout all of their, their retail networks. Um, but they're also using that platform to kind of effectively communicate their, their culture and their values to shine lights on areas of the business and people in the business who, you know, wouldn't normally get a look in and they created um, some really great levels of, of human connection. Quick announcement for all listeners. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a new toy on my, on my little deck thing so I can make my voice change. Anyway, sorry, I Leanne. love it. Do it again. Hello, Leanne. Do another one. Hello. <laughs> but we didn't interrupt your podcast listening for uh, for this. We actually interrupted it to tell you about one of our new favourite podcasts. It's called Success Story. It is hosted by Scott D. Clary. And it is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Success Story features question and answer sessions and conversations on sales, marketing, business, startups and entrepreneurship. 
Oh, and if you like this podcast, then I think you'll love Scott's episode in back in December, where the infamous Seth Godin talks about empowering employees. So go listen to Success Stories wherever you get your podcasts. What's interesting is that both Danielle and Sophie totally accept that the traditional way of incorporating DIB into business is not working as well as it should be. But with their new consultancy Belonging Base, are they doing things a little differently? What we're trying to do at Belonging Base is to say we're not going to focus on what I call the kind of painting by numbers, you know, diversity inclusion models. We want to actually really get into the cultures in organizations. We want to be getting into the team level, speaking with people, helping them to deal with each other in the best way that they possibly can. So we want to focus on the things that we have in common with people rather than the differences that set us apart. Now, one thing that we know we all have is mental health. Um, and that is a really good way of helping to change the conversations that people have in their teams and in their workplace. So when I trained up as a mental health first aid instructor, um, we actually discussed things like practicing the skill of listening non-judgmentally to other people. We do a big piece around what's called the frame of reference, which is a model to help you realize that when you're dealing with somebody, they bring their whole life experience their identity, their sexual orient orientation, their beliefs, their socioeconomic background, their work experience to that point. And all of those factors in their individual frame of reference make them who they are at that moment in time. And that frame of reference is going to be entirely individual to them and completely different from yours. And just by appreciating that, you have an immediate change of mindset in how you deal with people in terms of what kind of I hope the change that I see in cultures is that people will no longer be talking about the business case for diversity and inclusion. But one of the things I would say, if I was kind of, if I want to see a new startup coming into, into the marketplace and they set aside money, they think, yeah, let's do some D&I work, then I would urge them not to spend that money on a DEI specialist. I would get them to spend that money training their leaders to be the best people they possibly can and facilitating these kind of team workshops where where people can, can really make those connections. Now we've talked about belonging on the pod many many times before but here we have two women who both have experienced a huge change and as they mentioned before the change was not accepted by everyone. So I asked Danielle what belonging really means to her and how we can build a culture of belonging and inclusion in a workplace. The feeling that we ha we had when we first went through the transition was that we didn't feel like we belonged anymore. We felt like we were kind of like outsiders. And the people that have made our experiences great moving forward, it wasn't necessarily a particular company. It was particular people and managers and teams that made us feel welcome and helped support us in developing our careers. So for me, it's not about, because I've lots of companies that win awards. You know, don't get me wrong, but if you spoke to every single person in that business, do they all feel like they belong? One of the things that I, I came across through one of your old podcasts, actually, was the quote by John Amici, the uh, cultures mm -hmm. defined by the worst behavior tolerated. 
which I absolutely agree with because that's that that kind of backs up what I've just been talking about, which is that depending on where you are, if you let banter happen, if you let discrimination happen in your area, everyone thinks that's okay. The reason we picked belonging base, one of the reasons was we started with that feeling of belonging. I think for us, it was really personal. So there's a quote, I think, I think it was Brené Brown talks about belonging and the difference being the opposite to belonging is fitting in. And we spent a lot of time just trying to fit in and stay under the radar. And it really does affect your performance and your mental health. So what we would like to do, if it's even if it's just one company at a time, one team at a time, we want to be the people that you go to if you really want to have that feeling that that create that culture where people feel that they truly belong and be their best selves. It's it's all about that belonging feeling for us. We felt it, we didn't feel it, and then we feel it again. So and it does make such a big, big difference to what you're capable of at work. What's so interesting about the story is that Danielle is really open about her own experiences and challenges with being Sophie's partner. There are a lot of stories out there from the perspective of the person transitioning. But what about those who are most close to them? Here's Danielle again. I think when you're a partner of somebody that's going through a transition, it's, for me anyway, it was a journey I didn't think I would be on, one that I didn't want to be on, and one that I had a very adverse reaction to initially, so much so that I threw myself into work and had a burnout. I basically crashed and burned and then spent a whole week in bed and then seven weeks off work. So, and I, I thought my whole world had fallen in. I, and I had some very dark thoughts and I look at my life today and we're living, we're living our dream really now, you know, behind me, we go confidently. We, we are living our dream. We're living in the south of Spain. We're living our best life now. And had I let that get the better of me at the time, we may not be sitting here today. I went through a whole period of denial for quite some time and I couldn't get myself out of that area. And I think with the help of a professional, I actually got to the other side. And if you don't feel comfortable speaking to a professional, reach out to people like us that have been through the experience because we're always happy to talk to people who um, are in that dark place and can't see the way out because it's it does it does knock you at six when something like this happens and your life kind of gets totally turned upside down. So my advice would be talking to people and getting professional help. Yeah, find somebody you can trust. Um, make sure that you speak words out loud. That's really important for your internal processing. But first and foremost, focus on the future. However kind of dark you're feeling, if you focus on the future, even if it's one day in the future, one week in the future, one month in the future, you'll just automatically start looking forward to something. Um, and that's the essence of hope. Is that looking forward to something in the future? And that's the, that's the key to still being around kind of at the age of 52, um, as Daniel says, living a dream life in Spain with, you know, beautiful property, lovely kind of cultural surroundings. 
three beautiful dogs living their best lives, which could have ended so easily. Transgender and gender identity is a complex topic and one that is not spoken about enough, certainly in terms of the actual facts. If this is all new to you, if you want some help understanding what it is to be transgender and how to better support people in your workplace, Sophie has some excellent book recommendations. So the first one, I hardly recommend this, is it's called Trans Britain, A Journey from the Shadows by the wonderful Christine Burns. And if you really want to kind of find out what really the trans community is all about, what we've achieved over the last few decades, that's a read for you. If you want to kind of look at in more detail the kind of culture wars that are going on at the moment, this book is an absolute showstopper. The Transgender Issue by Sean Fay. Absolutely extraordinary author and really kind of picks all that bullshit out in a very articulate and entertaining way. And of course, if you want to chat with these amazing people, then here's how to get in touch. Best way to access us is through our LinkedIn profiles. Follow Belonging Base on, on LinkedIn. Um, you can go on our, our website as well and just click on the contact us button and we'll be happy to take things forward with you. During LGBTQ plus history month, Danielle and Sophie are offering sessions for anyone who's interested, kind of like a lunch and learn. So we delve into, you know, what is LGBTQ History Month, some of the key changes that have happened in terms of history over the last 50 plus years through our lifetime, which is actually really recent history in terms of um, equality right. And then we look at things like the language, the confusion around language, how people are worried that they're going to trip themselves up and, and re reinforcing, you know, it's not a problem, don't worry. And also we look at um, a little bit of our personal journey about the belonging, the not belonging and the belonging again, and how important that is in the workplace and talk to businesses about allyship um, as well. We're kind of intimating that with our own kind of timeline of our little life on earth so far and hopefully being quite That's entertaining happened. at the same time. We could do another three or four episodes with Danielle and Sophie alone, let alone expand the conversation around the transgender experience. It's it's a big, complex topic that is misunderstood, but one that is really important we engage with, we do better to understand, and we don't shy away from, we don't fear. Yeah, and as Danielle said... The younger generations are looking at you and they are judging you on whether you're actually taking on board all this stuff, whether you're actually doing something about it. Now, the kind of the thing which really surprised me was the whole idea about the sort of white male privilege. And of course, Sophie's got this unique perspective in that she's, you know, she's been both on both sides of that of that fence. And I suppose I joke about it on quite quite often saying, you know, I'm sort of a Gen X white straight all this kind of thing. I'm kind of quite lucky to take advantage of that privilege, really. And also the opportunity as well, I think, that you have to, to support um, the people around you to be an ally to women, to trans people, to members of the LGBTQ plus community. Um, we're not hating on, you know, I think a lot of the media hates on on the white straight male. It's not that. It's more a case of male privilege is real, white privilege is real. If we can use this privilege to support people around us and and improve the whole human experience for everyone then 
that is really something that we should be doing, especially as business leaders, as people in these positions of authority. We should be taking accountability for the human experience. I loved what Sophie said, you know, it's it's we're all humans, you're only a human being too. And that is making it hugely simplified and we're not taking away from the complexities of the experience and stories different different communities have but when it boils down to it if we actually just consider the human experience within our organizations it's a pretty good first step yeah and as danielle said it's okay to get it wrong it's if you if you want to get it right that makes a big difference i think so next week, we have the incredible Dr. Claire Hughes from Mind. If you're not from the UK, you don't know what Mind is. It's a huge mental health charity. Um, it's a really big deal. And then we have the amazing author and podcaster, Bruce Daisley. And then rounding off our LGBTQ plus month, we have the father of workplace culture himself, John Amici. Yes, it's going to be an incredible episode, an incredible lineup. I'm so excited. And what a way to continue our February content with the incredible Danielle and Sophie and bring you our very small contribution towards LGBTQ plus history month. Definitely go and follow them on social media, on LinkedIn to see everything they're up to. Danielle and Sophie, thank you so much for your contributions to this episode. It has been an incredible one and one that i think will always remain very special thank you okay we'll see you next week bye 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 al is grumpy 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 al grumpy al <laughs> listening listening oh, listening oh, listening <laughs> 2017. At this point, if you're watching this on a blooper and you actually watch the bloopers and you know what I mean when I say 2017, I want to take you for a drink. Get in touch. We'll fly you out to Muster. <laughs> Carry on now. Okay.